Hi everyone, I'm Mary Morton and welcome to the inaugural edition of Gathering Ground. Gathering Ground is a semi-weekly podcast where with each new episode, a special guest and I will discuss what it means to survive and thrive in the nonprofit industrial complex. In addition to being joined by some very interesting folks in philanthropy, nonprofit, and public service, we will look for questions from our listening audience on a wide range of topics. We are going to look closely at racial equity, diversity, and inclusion. How are we doing on our organizational journeys? Where are we getting stuck? What are the stories of organizations who are on the path toward diversity, racial equity, and inclusion? The basis for our conversations will come from my work as president of Morton Group, a national consulting firm based in Chicago, where we work with nonprofits and foundations. Our first guest is Edgar Villanueva, a nationally recognized expert on social justice philanthropy. Edgar currently serves as the president of programming and advocacy for the Schott Foundation in New York and is an enrolled member with the Lumbee Tribe. His recently released book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance, discusses hopeful and compelling alternatives to the dynamics of colonization in the philanthropic and social finance sectors. Decolonizing Wealth has been in Color Lines, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Edgar joins us today on this inaugural episode of Gathering Ground to talk about his book, his experience in the nonprofit and foundation worlds. Been waiting for this conversation, Edgar. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. There's so many things. We probably won't be able to get to all of them, but let's do our best. Let's start with a little bit about your background and your journey into philanthropy. Sure. So I began my career in philanthropy 15 years ago in North Carolina. Um, I'm a Native, uh, Native American from North Carolina and went to school for public health and had worked a number of years in the nonprofit sector. My uh, second year of graduate school, I actually got recruited to a foundation. I did not know what philanthropy was and had never heard of this organization. At the time, I had my mind sort of set on moving uh, into uh, maybe a corporate type of opportunity because I wanted to make some money and pay off all these student loans. And uh, so I was looking at sort of healthcare systems. So when I uh, interviewed at this foundation in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, um, I began to uh, really buy into the vision of this new president who was a, a, a new, um, new president there, a woman of color, um, who really helped me see that this was an amazing opportunity to invest millions of dollars into communities uh, to improve the health and, and lives of people in North Carolina. And so I kind of stumbled my way into the field like most people. I would say that uh, it's probably a couple of years in before I really understood what this work was uh, all about. And, um, you know, and probably around the same time that I began to see what it really wasn't about, <laughs> you know, that it wasn't all cracked up to be what I thought it was. Um, there's a lot of great things that were happening uh, in philanthropy, but um, at the same time, there is a uh, veneer of charity and uh, a lot of focus on the optics and on legacy that uh, were getting in the way of the work. And so those are some of the early realities that I began to face, um, you know, as especially as a young person. I was 28 when I started in philanthropy um, and as a person of color. 
I, this all sounds very familiar, and I, I think I remember us having conversations a number of years ago when we were first getting to know each other where we were um, sort of swapping stories about what it's like to be folks of color in the foundation, in the you know philanthropic circles, and it sounds very, very familiar. So how did you get to the point of saying, okay, I have had these experiences at several foundations, and I'm going to write a book? Yeah, so, you know, I think when I... Years ago, I used to kind of joke about it. I would, you know, as I was seeing and understanding what was really going on behind the curtain, so to speak. Uh, the fourth I, I wall would just was of, removed. Right, right. <laughs> I, I would, you know, I kind of thought to myself, people would not believe this stuff. You know, people would not believe what we really talk about at foundations. They probably imagine that we're discussing poverty and just having these like philosophical discussions. No, and that wasn't my experience. We were getting uh, new window treatments and I had to pick out which design I wanted. Or we were looking at uh, paint swatches because we were repainting the building. Um, or it was all about there's a board member that's unhappy. We have to all gather around to figure out how to make this person happy. And so we were not having those deep philosophical conversations and deep strategy discussions. So, you know, I kind of just felt like at times it was a circus of this cast of characters. and. Um, you know, we were the charade kind of parading around like we were saving the world, but it was a lot of nonsense happening. And then I think, you know, my first job of philanthropy where I felt put out and pushed out of the organization, um, I kind of had a desire to write a book there because I felt like a, it, it was such an unjust situation that I had been treated unfairly and I had zero power, like no power to fight back or to push back. You know, this large foundation in North Carolina that funded everybody. And even when I left the foundation, I, I ran a nonprofit where the foundation funded me. I became a grantee, right? And so the the extent of the reach of influence and power was just like ongoing. And so I was like, the only way that I could ever, you know, actually change this uh, might be to write a book about it. Well, I kept tucking that away. And then where I really sort of got frustrated and wanted to write this book was when I realized that my experience was not just me. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just my circumstance in this particular foundation um, or two that I had worked in, but that many, many people of color, many other folks, women, LGBT folks from marginalized communities had this shame, uh, this shared experience. And I thought this is just ludicrous that all of this talent is being pushed out and is leaving the sector because we're not willing to um, make room for leadership. We're not willing to walk our walk and our, uh, you know, walk our talk uh, around diversity and equity. And so I, I felt this, this, this sort of nudge around wanting to share these stories, my stories and the stories of others. Um, And, you know, in a book that was, you know, in the beginning, a tell all perhaps, or something that was coming from a place of anger. And then in my own journey, in my own process, I landed in a place of, you know what, it's not about being angry. It's not about um, wanting to necessarily dismantle the system. But the folks in my community and the folks in my network, we actually have an alternative to this. It doesn't have to be this way. We actually have a different way of viewing the world and viewing community and viewing philanthropy that I think needs to be captured um, as a and put into a book as the way forward. Well, that 
was music to my ears when I uh, heard that you were going to write some of this down. And I want to give our our uh, audience just a little bit of context around uh, some of the stats that currently exist in philanthropy, uh, things that people may not be aware of when we talk about uh, sort of uh, philanthropic professionals and the foundation world. 75% of all foundations full-time staff are all white. Only 3% of all philanthropic institutions are led by black executives with even fewer representation by other races or ethnicities. And the financial services industry, which you also talk about in your book, is 81% white. So this is where we are in 2019. And um, of course, as we know, it's actually gotten a little bit better, right? Um, but we have so far to go. So one of the things that I've noticed in the book, and, and let's just talk about the structure of the book, if you will, because you have some very um, uh, compelling and provocative uh, chapter titles. <laughs> Tell us about the structure of the book before we get into some of the, the detail. Sure. So um, the first part of the book is about where it hurts. And I use an analogy of the body throughout the book because uh, where it hurts, I'm relating this back to our history of colonization um, and the history of how wealth has been accumulated in this country, um, in part and uh, on the backs of you know black and brown folks and the trauma that has resulted in our communities as a result of that. Um, and so that uh, the, the remedy for that trauma is healing. So the second part of the book is about healing. And so that, that physical, thinking of the body as a metaphor is something that runs throughout the book. Um, also, in the first part of the book, um, I use an analogy of a plantation, which is uh, really striking for a lot of folks. And the reason that I do that, uh, two reasons. One, because my very first job in philanthropy, I, I literally worked on a plantation. And so there is in my mind when I think of philanthropy and the stories that I've heard from others, um, you know, it feels like a plantation. But not only did mine feel like a plantation, it was a literal plantation. I worked on the estate of R.J. Reynolds. And every day when I would drive my little Honda Civic, um, you know, from my college car, onto this plantation that was a now a beautiful park um, owned by Wake Forest University. Um, I often thought of the ancestors uh, who worked in these tobacco fields uh, on, the on the back of black slaves um, and native slaves in North Carolina who um, helped this family earn all this wealth. And now here I am, uh, you know, a light-skinned brown boy who is now uh, gets to be on the inside of the house and the responsibility that I had to try to get these resources back into these communities um, and the barriers and the challenges that I faced in doing that were remarkable. So that analogy of a plantation, when you think of all the cast of characters on a plantation from the field hand to the overseer to uh, the house slaves, um, really sort of represent in many ways, I think, the nonprofit sector um, and, and you know, in philanthropy. And we've joked sort of around the water cooler as people of color and philanthropy for a long time, talking about working for the right. man yes, and we have. being on the plantation. And so I thought, you know what, I, I want to bring this truth to light. I want to bring this to a main stage conversation. Um, I, I want to be bold enough that we no longer whisper in the hallways of a conference. We want to bring our experience to the main stage because this is really what it's like. Uh, for people of color working in philanthropy. This is really what it feels like for nonprofit leaders who are begging for scraps and, you know, for funding from 
uh, from foundations. And uh, people need to understand that. And, you know, I believe in speaking the truth and speaking the truth of power as a step uh, towards reconciliation. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about that uh, before we wrap, because I think that piece around the healing of, of, of how we heal from this work is so important. So you in your in your book talk about some real life experiences. And as someone who's working on a book, I, I remember thinking, well, he really is going there. He is really just, as you said, putting it out there sort of on Front Street, if you will. And I want to know what your concerns were about doing that. And in particular, about the foundation that you used to work with. So just for a little clarity uh, for our listeners, we are talking about one of the early stories that Edgar tells in his new book, where he really goes over what happened in his first uh, foundation position. Uh, He was doing very well at the foundation and in discussions with his uh, boss at that time, they came to an understanding that he would start to look for other opportunities. And uh, she was very supportive of him looking for other opportunities and pledged her support. And with that in mind, Edgar started to look for other opportunities. And several months into his search, it became clear that he was actually being sabotaged, I think is the the right word to use. And um, he was not getting good references. And as it turned out, they were coming from the foundation. And in particular, they were coming from his boss at the time. So Edgar, um, really so surprised that you were so forthcoming um, about this particular situation in your book. Yeah. Well, I actually love that you uh, asked me that question because so few people have actually asked me that question. Um, I think, um, you know, some of my personal experiences and describing where I worked uh, were agonizing for me. I agonized over whether or not I should include that in the book um, for for a number of reasons. And it's kind of funny now that the book is out, no one's really asking about the part that I agonized over that much. Um, so uh, people are, are, are more interested in kind of the ideas. But, you know, I agonized over it for a couple of reasons. One, you know, being vulnerable and putting that uh, personal, those personal stories of pain out there um, for the world to, to read is, is really uh, kind of a vulnerable position to be in. And um, secondly, these are, you know, people who, where I work are, are institutions that are doing good work. Um, the people that work in these institutions are, many of them are good people. Um, I did not want to seem to be throwing anyone under the bus um, or coming for any particular person by any means. Um, however, I felt like, um, and you know, and I this was confirmed by my my coach and you know people that I confided in and my editor around this book that if I didn't tell my story, there was no book. Without those intimate. Uh, you know, stories of my own personal experience, this would just be some, you know, like academic critique of philanthropy. And it's really those personal stories that resonate with people that get at the hearts and minds of what it really feels like. And I can't tell you the number of people who have written to me every day. I get emails. I've got even handwritten letters from people who are like, I thought I was the only one. Um, I can't believe that, uh, you know, you went through this because a lot of people see me now and they just know this Edgar who seems to be successful in the field and um, 
everyone loves Edgar or whatever, right? But I was like, no, it has it has not been a walk in the park. Let me tell you, I've got scars on the show. And so I think um, to get to the, you know, a more honest conversation around leadership, around equity, um, people need to understand like what, what are, you know, what's really going on. Like these are, this is what really happens um, and how well-meaning people and well-meaning institutions can perpetuate um, oppressive environments, um, abusive leadership. Um, if we go um, unchecked, if we're not accountable, if we're not examining um, our behaviors. And so, you know, by far the field has, uh, celebrated and, uh, all, all of the major leaders, you name them in philanthropy, most of them have, um, celebrated this book and applauded me. And I'm, it's kind of funny. People are like, you're so brave. And it, it's kind of sad to me that it's brave Mm -hmm. that I shared these stories, but that's how much power is, uh, you know, sitting in philanthropy and how much power certain individuals have in this field that for years, um, people that, that power goes unchecked and people, individuals in this field have uh, the ability to, um, direct millions of dollars at their, at their whims. And, and so that's the type of, uh, you know, um, you know, unbridled power that I want people to understand exists. And that we must uh, we must check that we must hold that accountable. We must find ways to return that power to the people because it's not about any one individual. Exactly, the work is larger than all of us. But I think to your point about power, the power is that it's the truth, Edgar. Right? I mean, that's really right. Right. the power at the end of the day that someone has stood up and told the truth of what's happening in foundations. And I think you reference the Association of Black Foundation Executives report the exit, right, about why uh, black folks are leaving, just not foundations, but philanthropy overall. They would just Mm -hmm. rather do something else. And and this is a way to start having those conversations. Um, We're a big believer in if you don't have a conversation, you cannot have a relationship. And so I think that is what people are, what's resonating with people is that you've told the truth in in a way that so many of us, certainly people of color, experience it you've given it voice in a way that we haven't heard before. So, so thank you for that. Um, want to talk in greater detail about some of the, some of the content of the book and want to talk a little bit, a bit about how you weave in and talk about money, um, how money is considered in this country and how you discuss it in your book, this idea of scarcity, right? Which is how most of us are socialized uh, as somebody who does a lot of fundraising, often talking about the fact that there's, there's, actually plenty of money to go around and so this idea that there's not enough is something that we need to really we need to really uh turn that around so why was it important for you you talked about the historical references in the book and to lay that groundwork which i think many people don't know they don't make the connections right so Mm -hmm. let's talk about how you describe money and how you bring in the social finance um sector as well sure Gosh, so I mean, it's all about money. Everything is about money. Um, and, you know, whatever challenges we're, we're facing as a society, whatever social justice issues, uh, you know, are on our agendas, uh, when you begin to peel back the onion, we're going to find that it's all about money, right? And our history of, of this country with colonization and slavery, stolen land, genocide, all of these atrocities happened in the name of accumulating wealth. 
And it has been that way from, you know, for, for 500 years from the very first point of contact from the colonizers in this country um, who have uh, completely inundated um, our thinking, our way of life, our way of being around this idea of needing to have more, 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 which is absolutely contrary to uh, society as it existed prior to colonization when tribes were here and living um, in a way that was much more uh, communal and about collaboration. And so uh, this history uh, and this, this way of colonizing has been super intentional um, to divide us, to separate us into the us versus thems, into the haves versus have-nots, and to create a paradigm and, and mindset around scarcity. And, you know, only in this country where, you know, a billionaire that we talk about increasing taxes on billionaires, do people who only make $50,000 a year stand up and scream about that? Like, what? right? right? Like, right. I mean, there is, there's such a, uh, a crazy mind shift uh, about that. So th this, these feelings of scarcity of not having enough are completely colonized ways of thinking. It's very intentional that those of us who are on the resource seeking side, the fundraising side, those of us who come from communities with low wealth, it's very intentional that we um, are, you know, have, you know, for us to have these mindsets of scarcity so that we turn on each other so that we don't organize collectively against uh, the powers that be and, you know, those who are holding the majority of the resources. And, um, you know, that just affects every aspect of our being, right? It affects how we do our work, um, how we um, are our own personal orientation to money and wealth. And so I, in the book, uh, I lay out this history of colonization and how it's, uh, you know, steep, how it's connected to money and the accumulation of wealth. And then I make, I put forth the idea and the notion that it's not really about money, right? Like money is neutral. It's about how money is used, right? So how money was used in the past as a mechanism to uh, accumulate more than enough um, then, uh, and to exploit people in that process. But it wasn't about the money. It was, it was the acts behind how money was used. So if money is neutral, can we flip that script and actually use money in a different way? Because money is just a proxy. It, it represents something. It represents relationships, right? It, re it, re it uh, represents sweat equity. So can we actually use that in a way that actually facilitates healing, um, you know, repairing what has been done? Can it be like a medicine to bring our communities back together? Um, and so that's sort of the charge that I put out to people who control the flow of resources, understanding one, that the institution that you work in, whether it's a bank, a, uh, you know, whether it's uh, a foundation or whatnot, these institutions have a history of harming communities. And we need to understand that. And then take the responsibility to think about, well, how do we, from here on out, one, at minimum, keep more hurt from happening, um, you know, not inflicting further harm on communities. But secondly, can we actually use these resources in a way that it's bringing um, healing and relationships and restoring power, resiliency and community communities? You know, when I read the piece about uh, money and um... Um, just how we view money. I thought, my goodness, um, this sounds familiar because it's something that we're often trying to get people to understand in the broader community about, as you say, money has no innate value, right? We give it the value. 
and understanding right. that we have the ability to do wonderful things with money. So money, in fact, is not the root of all evil. It is what we do with it. And so I just appreciated right. you raising that up because it's something that we're always trying to communicate because, you know, we're, we're uncomfortable talking about money. Right. So so all right. of this sort of secrecy just falls into that how we've been socialized. We don't we don't talk about it in an open manner. And I'm always trying to say we just we need to be clear. We need to put it on the table. So I so appreciated you you pulling that uh, forward and and hopefully it can be used as a launching pad for people to examine some of their own attitudes about money, because, of course, we grow up and we go into foundations. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> and then we start uh, right. trying to give away money uh, and not really understanding some of those connections and and the power imbalance and all of that. Um, so when in your role as a as a funder, how have you addressed some of these inequities? You know, I think um, and I'm glad you, you said what you just said. I think all of us need to examine our relationship with money, whether we're a funder, a fundraiser or, or just an everyday person. Right. We all have a little bit of change in our pocket. Right. And we can choose how we use that money if we're supporting POC businesses or if we're, um, you know, where we're investing, if we have enough to invest, those kinds of things um, in the f foundation world as a funder. I'm really pushing people to examine uh, three questions. I mean, there's there's a lot of places to to push this conversation, lots of decision points, but three major questions come to mind. One is I want folks to really understand where this money came from in the first place, right? Um, just looking back on history and understanding where the money on the foundation or the money in your family came from is a very powerful exercise. Right now, we have um, a lot of folks are looking toward, uh, you know, uh, looking at uh, models around futurism. That's a big hot thing now, right? And wanting to apply that to the nonprofit sector. And I'm not against that, but I think that there's just so much that we knew in our history that we need to remember and look back on. And so that's kind of the first big question. If we we need to take ownership of our history and how we have actually um, harmed and perpetuated uh, communities and understanding that this money in private philanthropy is money that was shielded from taxation, right? That's money that was held back from the public, from public coffers that would have paid for public education, healthcare, elder care, all the things that we need um, to support and be a safety net in our communities. This money has been held back. So in, in a sense, we can say this money was twice stolen. Um, so that's sort of the first, just the provocative question that I put out to funders. Then second, the 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 idea um, or second question is who gets to allocate, manage, and spend this money? Who actually has the power to do so? And so that's um, you know getting at who's sitting around these tables, who's controlling, um, who's calling the shots? Are we force assimilating organizations into communities to adopt our ways of thinking? Um, and sort of recolonizing folks through our resources. And so um, we need to uh, deeply examine that. And, you know, we actually have seen, um, we have seen some progress around diversity and we know diversity matters, but it's not the only thing. Um, but we have a long ways to go in terms of who's deciding in our communities, um, the books that we read and what comes on our, our television and um, who gets a loan and, uh, you know, which uh, who gets the venture capital, all these types of uh, questions. Then the final question, because funders love data, 
is I'm like, where is your money going? <laughs> yes, they right? do. Right. So mm -hmm. um, look at your data. It is um, people are so st are startled when I say of uh, grants that are leaving the doors of foundations, only about seven to eight percent of funding goes to communities of color. That is unacceptable. That is terrible. That is embarrassing. And so if we are ever going to begin to walk our walk around DEI, we need to look at that data and make drastic changes, changes all the way upstream in our organizations to to make sure that we're using all of our resources from grant making um, to also our investments to um, get at closing the race wealth gap. Yes. Yes. And yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. It's, <laughs> there's a lot of work to do. And uh, we're going to take just a brief break. You're listening to Gathering Ground, and our first guest is Edgar Villanueva. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Gathering Ground. If you enjoyed this conversation with Edgar, you won't want to miss him in Chicago on Wednesday, February 27th. Morton Group LLC is proud to be one of the sponsors for Edgar's talk with the broader community around these important issues that he's raised in decolonizing wealth. Again, that's Wednesday, February 27th. And for more information, you can go to mortongroup.com or you can go to decolonizingwealth.com. We hope to see you there. everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back. I'm Mary Morton, and you are listening to the inaugural episode of Gathering Ground, a semi-weekly podcast featuring conversations about the nonprofit industrial complex, philanthropy, racial diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this episode, we are joined by Edgar Villanueva, a nationally recognized expert on social justice philanthropy. Currently, Edgar is president of programming and advocacy for the Schott Foundation of New York and the author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. So we're going to continue with our conversation. And Edgar, when we talk about colonization, uh, you, of course, go into the historical roots of colonization in the book, and you move through this history before we arrive at uh, the chapters around the seven steps of healing. As you move toward unpacking colonization, you discuss the need to identify and reject the colonized aspects of our culture so that we can heal. So instead of divide, control, and exploit, we can move to connect, relate, and belong. Why did you approach uh, this particular section in that manner? Well, you know, I, I talk about colonization um, as a virus in the first part of the book, kind of getting back to that analogy uh, around the body. 500 years ago, um, a virus touched the shores of this country that has pervaded um, every aspect of our, our beings, of our society, our policies, our systems. Um, and, you know, I want folks to understand that when we talk about colonization, we're not just talking about the historical um, sort of uh, genocide and, and um, erasure of native peoples in this country. 
um, over 500 years. We're talking about modern day things that are happening. And so these dynamics of colonization, which are, as you said, are, are to uh, conquer, to divide, to control, are still at play. We still we see things happening. Uh, we, we're putting you know, kids in cages at the border, for example. But they also show up in very subtle ways in our organizations and in our, in our way of being in community, um, the way that we want to, you know, put up uh, walls and barriers and not build relationships with folks. And so um, so I do describe it as, as a virus that, because it, it is uh, spreads in that way and it mutates. It gets, um, you know, as as time goes on, it starts showing up in, in new and creative ways when we think we're addressing um, you know, that we're in a post-racial society, if anyone ever actually believed that. Really? Um, you know, we see uh, we see things happening and sort of these dynamics of colonization and oppression kind of show up in, in new ways. So that is, um, that's really what it's about. And and so for those of us who are working in this space to to really begin to explore and examine, you know, how is it within how I'm living in my life and in my leadership, and in my personal interactions, might I be perpetuating some of these dynamics? Um, and then at the organizational level, are we doing things to bring people together to connect versus actually uh, further separating and causing divisions in our communities? So let's go back to this idea of the virus, because when I read it, I initially thought, OK, sometimes I have a virus, right? I have a cold. And um, mm-hmm. as you know, we have to let it run its course. We really can't take antibiotics for a virus. <laughs> so when yeah. I think about it in those terms, how do we interrupt the colonizer virus? And is that, that of course, is then um, illustrated in those seven steps. Um, and, and in particular, I want to talk about, there's seven steps, and we won't be able to talk about all of them, but I'd like to talk about investment and repair. Um, one of the things that I learned uh, when I was on a trip to Anchorage, I had a chance to go to the uh, Native American Museum, which was extraordinary. And just about this return to to the land and to nature and how Native folks really don't use any more than they need. And I was so struck by that because, of course, that is not what I'm used to, right? This idea <laughs> of access, right, that we that we live with for the most part. And so how do we... How do we figure this out in terms of the the virus and 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 really addressing the virus? How do we interrupt it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, I think when we think about decolonizing, um, it it is a process. It is a, a process of of healing, is how I view it. Uh, for some folks, they think of decolonization as a literal process. Um, you know, literally um, reinstating rights to indigenous peoples giving land back reparations um, of some sort, you know, reparations, those types of things. And I totally support all of those ideas. Um, I just think that sometimes as a political process, we can get stuck, right? We reparations, for example, there's been a bill brought to Congress almost every year and it just makes no traction. And so I think, uh, so what I'm offering is folks to not think so much um, in the, the literal political process way of decolonizing um, because, you know, in the 21st century uh, that we're living in, I think that's the century we're in. Sometimes I get that confused. Um, we are so intertwined at this point. Our businesses are connected. Our families are connected. Um, there really is no future that does not um, entail the colonizer and the, colon, you know, colonized living together in the same place for the most part. So what we can focus on is how can we 
um, identify the impacts and the effects of colonization. Like what are those places of trauma? How are they showing up in our communities and in our organizations? And how can we begin to heal from those effects? And so I think of the um, process of undoing colonization as a process of healing. Well, and I appreciate that because I also think about it, and I know you're familiar with the work that Kellogg Foundation has been doing for a number of years around mm-hmm. truth, uh, racial healing, and transformation. And and I, I appreciate not trying to separate uh, the offenders, if you will, from the community, right, as opposed to calling yeah. them in and really let's collectively try to figure out how we're going to heal from years and years and years of of this kind of um, action that has, has really oppressed so many people. And so when you talk about the healing piece and the repair, uh, what what's your idea behind how we can repair? Because I want to make sure that we um, end with some solutions on what people can do. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are seven steps. They're not linear. Um, I hated to simplify them down to seven steps, but, um, you know, apparently for books, you have to do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but one of the steps repair for me is really once you've gone through the process of uh, kind of looking the truth in, in, in the ugly face um, and dealing and coming to terms with our history and sort of grieving that and apologize for that. Um, you are going to um, then get to a place to try to, you know, how do what do we do about this? What are some steps to action? How do we repair this? Um, now, we know that there really is no way to undo what's happened for 500 years or to actually repair um, that. But we can look at some various approaches uh, to begin to address the, re- the, the effects. Uh, when you're looking at the race wealth gap and how um, you know, the the generations it would take for an average black family in this country to catch up to a white family um, in terms of the amount of wealth. When you look at uh, the gross marginal, uh, marginalization of communities of color by philanthropy, um, the lack of investment, uh, these are things that we can actually fix. It's not that hard. Um, we have to get to a place where we actually have the political will to do these things. We have to be so upset and so bothered um, by uh, what has been um, wrong that we have the will um, and the incentives to do some of these things. So, you know, for example, reparations is one approach. Um, Other models that I put out in the book that people are exploring um, ideas of universal basic income, right? Um, But, you know, looking at uh, increasing um, our payout percentages, some of this is getting into the invest part of of the book as well. Um, these are practical things that a foundation, for example, can consider changing. Um, some people say that these, uh, some of these ideas are radical. I don't think they're radical at all. If we're really serious about equity, we have to fundamentally change and, and think about a radical approach. If we look at foundations, for example, and we took, um, you know, many folks may not know, but private foundations are only required to pay out 5% of their assets, Right. And so 95%, we can talk about that in a minute, 95% is, is sitting in the bank. Only 5% of foundation resources are actually leaving the door. Now, of that 5%, only about 7 to 8% of those resources are going to communities of color. If we took the entire 5%, say we, we increased from 7 to 8% to 100%, 
right? So all the grant making that was happening in this country, all of a sudden, 100% of that was going into communities of color. We would still not achieve equity, right? So we're spending a lot of time and energy trying to influence grant makers to fund more communities of color, which is a um, you know, which is the point of the work that I'm doing. But the reality is if we achieve that goal and we had 100% of grant making going into communities of color, we still have a long ways to achieve um, equity. And the reality of that is because the 95%, right, the real bulk of the wealth is actually invested in, harm, in, in, in harmful and extractive industries in Wall Street. And so we have to think some, think of something very radically different um, if we're going to actually shift wealth in a way that's going to close the race wealth gap. And so I want all of the 5% and some more. I want foundations to consider dipping into their corpus, into that 95% and thinking about um, how can we turn some of that money over into communities of color? What if all foundations took 10% of their assets, their corpus, and just gave that over to communities of color, whether that's black owned banks or they just released the funds to us to invest in our own solutions and our own institution. Now, that would be a conversation, um, a reform, something more radical that may actually begin to chip away and to move the needle on equity. Now, some people may say I've lost my mind when I'm talking about that. Right. But, the, you know, I, I want us to really get to a serious conversation about equity and playing around with this 5% of grant making that foundations are doing is not going to get us there in my lifetime or the lifetime of my nieces and nephews. Well, I think this this question about equity is maybe at the crux of it because um, I find um, that people don't really understand what equity means versus equality. Is that yes. part of your experience as well? Absolutely. <laughs> so that, that there really isn't a, a deep understanding of why this has the ability to change um, this, you know, we can change this formula of how money is being given out by foundations. Now, when you've talked about some of these ideas that in some cases may be branded as radical, um, have you found a group of folks that think, well, it is possible. We understand it's going to take some time, but, but we can try it. Do you find takers, if you will, who'll say, okay, what can you do to help us think about this in a deeper manner so that we can actually make some moves toward um, solutions that are equity based? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there are folks who are really serious about this. Uh, we are in a moment right now um, of urgency. Um, I think, uh, you know, everything that we've worked to build and the wonderful programs and movements that philanthropy has invested in. Um, it's all under attack. You know, at the Schott Foundation for 26 years, for example, we have invested in um, decriminalizing young people and, and trying to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline. And this very administration that we're sitting um, with right now is trying, you know, closing the Office of Civil Rights and is militarizing our schools. And so I think that th this moment of urgency is causing people to think differently and to want to respond in a way we can't we can't respond at the same level that we have been responding and, to, and, and you know, expect to see uh, transformative change in our communities. So what I am finding um, a couple of things that are happening that are, you know, um, awesome. One, the, the field is reading this book. Right. Like so the fact that 
I am going there, no holds bars with ideas um, in the field is reading this book and inviting me in for conversations is, I think, a reflection to go beyond um, just, you know, they could have easily, you know, written me off. Um, There are foundations, several foundations who have informed me that this book is providing the framework for their strategic planning process. There are groups like the North Star Fund here in New York City that is operationalizing concepts from the book all throughout their operations and examining their board, their grantees and where money is going, looking at their investments. Um, Foundations are moving more into a place of thinking about 100 percent of their investments being uh, program related or mission related. Uh, Nathan Cummings Foundation just last year announced they were moving 100 percent of their endowment into mission related. Right. This is a huge thing. Ford Foundation uh, sits on $12 billion, and they announced that uh, they are moving $1 billion into mission-related. It's not enough. It's a start. We'll take the billion. I have questions about what you're doing with your $11 billion. But, you know, um, I think that these are decisions that foundations are making that are going to cause others to consider this. Um, We're seeing practices and expectations change. To have an all-white board is just like unacceptable. Like people are like, really, you know? Now, if family foundations where it's just family, um, and in some cases they are examining and opening up board governance to people from outside the family and for communities of color, um, I am uh, a witness to that. At the Andrews Family Fund, which is a family foundation, last year opened its board to three people of color from the community, and I joined that board of directors. And so there are ways, I think, um, where we are looking at our practices and our, you know, around uh, board leadership, around staffing, around grant making, um, around even our evaluation systems where folks are questioning better ways to do it. Um, The thing that I think is going to be our challenge is what you just hinted at, understanding what equity really means, the difference between equity, equity and equality, right? Because, you know, equality feels good. I think people are kind of operating under that assumption that, oh, we're all doing this because we all deserve the same. But the truth is, when we think about equity and we begin operationalizing equity in these organizations, that means that people who have had privilege and have and have had power are going to have to take a seat back or a step back. And the question will be, are people going to be willing to do that? People who have been calling the shots, are you willing to step back to let others call the shot? Are you willing to give up some of your power? Because if you have been having the power, um, when you begin to operationalize uh, equity, it may actually feel like oppression for you. Exactly. And so are we willing to actually go that far? And so that's the question that I have, um, you know, and we'll have to kind of wait and see when the rubber meets the road, how far people are willing to go. Edgar, I absolutely know Nathan Cummings and North Star Fund and and know them as a progressive organizations. I also want to lift up two organizations that we've had the enormous uh, pleasure and, and honor to work with both in Chicago and the Pacific Northwest, the first being the Woods Fund of Chicago. Uh, Woods Fund is leading the work, um, Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation, the initiative of the Kellogg Foundation, and they're leading it in Chicago. And also, I want to lift up the work that we've been doing in the Pacific Northwest uh, for over two and a half years at this point with the Pride Foundation. The Pride Foundation has been digging uh, deeper into racial equity and and really are now talking about 
and in fully embracing centering racial equity in their work. And this work was um, started a number of years ago uh, by previous CEOs, but in particular, I will say, was brought into light in a deeper manner by Chris Hermans, the immediate past CEO. And uh, we've had an opportunity to work with them on the racial equity action plan, their strategic visioning process, and most recently, their executive search for their new CEO. And I have no doubt that this work will continue with the same kind of momentum uh, that uh, we've seen over the last year uh, or so, the last several years, under the direction of the new CEO. So are there other foundations that really maybe are at, at the very beginning of having these conversations that are older, more established, are not known particularly for being progressive that you've seen any movement? Yeah, you know, I, th- you know, I, so many foundations, I, I think uh, most foundations nowadays are having some type of conversation about equity. I hope so. Even if it's only at the very beginning stages of even understanding you know, I, I did a webinar last year called Philanthropy is So White, where I brought in different leaders, white, so a couple of white leaders from philanthropy. One of those was the CEO of the Nellie May Education Foundation that's in Quincy, Massachusetts. And I would say that they are kind of middle of the road type of foundation. Um, white man leader has had mostly white board and their approach um, has been relatively race neutral. And um, I've been witness to to uh, that particular foundation um, and their journey of evolving and doing deep work with their board and with their staff and uh, seeing some change in leadership there. Um, and what I really appreciate about Nick Donahue, who is the CEO, is that he's been so publicly um, vulnerable about his own experience and learning curve and journey with this and his uh, having the blind spots. And um, I think that's really important that white leaders um, share that experience, uh, that it is uh, that it is challenging um, and it is a learning curve, but be willing to uh, to do the work. We know Meyer Memorial um, found our trust in Portland is a fantastic example where a white leader did the work, took the organization and the board through the process, has had a change of leadership, is really trying to operationalize those values. And so I think, um, you know, again, I think that's that's really uh, promising. There's a lot of work to do. There's also, you know, stories of foundations where I would say we're seeing some white lash, right? Like um, who are um, wanting to pull things back and and kind of draw the line in the sand around this being their money and their foundation, their family's legacy and and whatnot. So you still have some of whatever you see happening on the political spectrum is kind of happening in a different level within philanthropy in these organizations. But what gives me hope um, is I have beyond philanthropy, I've been invited in to speak with some corporations, some financial institutions, and even people with private wealth, some names that you would probably recognize um, who are super duper wealthy folks. And are really trying to understand um, what they should be doing different and to begin an, a journey around equity in their own lives and in their institutions. And, you know, that that makes me hopeful because these are folks who don't have to do this, right? They, they don't have, um, no one's pushing them. Uh, there's no requirement. The government surely isn't, has, has no requirements on these institutions. And so, you know, I think, uh, I'm seeing a real authentic desire from a lot of folks that I would think of sort of like the unusual suspects uh, to want to have conversations and explore these ideas. Um, And the truth is, you know, the idea of pulling people in, right? 
Um, these folks, no matter how wealthy, no matter how privileged, have their own pain and trauma. And when we can help them see and understand that they have suffered because of white supremacy, then they're going to be a lot more willing to begin to have conversations about how to dismantle white supremacy in our organizations and communities. Well, that is very hopeful. And um, I, I think that's what we need. We need to remain hopeful. And so I am just so thankful that you wrote this book and that you're getting the response um, that you are receiving uh, because we we have, as you say, so much work to do and we don't have a lot of time for these conversations. And so I think, again, this is forcing uh, people to have conversations because people are buzzing about the book and uh, that's a wonderful thing. And so um, in closing, if you could leave the philanthropic community with um, one or two messages, what would it be? You know, I would say read this book if you have, haven't read it. Um, and not just because I wrote it. I'm not making any money off of it. It's all going to uh, a fund to support Native youth. But um, I do think that uh, this is a moment, even when I read the book, I'm re reminded of uh, the, these ideas and concepts and how I have to keep working on this. And, and then to do the work. Let's, let's all get in here and do the work together. We are all um, subject to biases and to trauma and to all the things that have been sort of handed down to us because of the families we were born into and because of uh, what we've inherited from uh, this country's history. And so let's, uh, our only way out is together. We're all connected. Our, our interdependence is inescapable. And so I think if we will be willing to do the work together, we're going to get there faster. Um, and on the other side of all of this is going to be, um, you know, what we all really want. And that's a sense of love and community and, um, you know, balance in our lives. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much. Um, Edgar, thank you so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. And I am wishing you continued success with the book and all that you're doing. Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance can be found in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook formats and is available now on Amazon at Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Books A Million. It's everywhere. There's no way you can't find this book. And if you want to catch Edgar in one of his many speaking engagements, you can go to decolonizingwealth.com events and stay tuned for our next episode when we are joined by visionary executive director Sol Flores of La Casa Norte. Sol is on her way to becoming the next deputy governor for the state of Illinois, and we talk with her first here on Gathering Ground.